Welcome everybody to another True Potential podcast. This is episode 67 and we're recording this on Friday the 7th of May. It is the Do More With Your Money podcast. So today we're going to be talking to the people who do precisely that. They are the ones that do more with your money. It is an investment management special. Have you ever wondered what happens to that pound once you click impulse save and invest? How do world events that you read about in the newspaper and watch on the news, how do they affect your portfolio and and what decisions are being made every day to find new opportunities for you and your money around the world? So we'll we'll find out because we're joined today by Jeff Casson, Chris Leyland and George Bell. And they are the people who make those decisions and they can tell us all about it. So uh, welcome, everybody. Morning, Peter. Morning. How are we all? Are we all looking forward to a, a, another weekend? Uh, Jeff, I think when we spoke last week, you were telling me about how you were looking forward to a pint in the pub for the bank holiday weekend and maybe some fish and chips. So did that did, did your wish come true? My wish nearly came through. Um, didn't get the fish and chips, but I got the pint. So that was that was a good thing. Couldn't get a table uh, to be served food. Hadn't thought far enough ahead to, to book a table. So got part there. Might try for the other half of it this weekend. Well, those are the decisions you've got to you've got to think ahead now, haven't you? And plan ahead for that uh, that table if that's what you want. Good to see you, Chris. Welcome back to the to the podcast again. Hi, Peter. Are you well? I'm good. Yeah, not bad at all, actually. Looking very good. And George, you've uh, I can see we're all in our team colours, but you've 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 upped the ante. You've gone nice and smart for the podcast this morning. But I know the reason why. So give a plug to Morning Markets for our audience. Get get your plug in now. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just just. I'm live straight out the uh, the studio, which is just about two foot two foot to the left of where I'm sat now. Um, but yeah, morning markets. Um, aim of morning markets is to give our viewers a, a short roundup of of changes which we've seen come through over the last 24 hours, key economic events. So this morning, I'll be in there discussing uh, the Bank of England, which I'm sure we'll come on to in this mm-hmm. session. Uh, the Monetary Policy Committee decision there. So yeah, very very much worth a watch, uh, worth subscribing, worth with. Um, hitting the like button as well if you do enjoy the content um, and offer any feedback. Good well, it's bad. great. It's a, well, well said, George. It's a, it's a great morning market. It's perfect for that if you just need that little snapshot each morning of what's happening and how it could be affecting your money. So uh, as George says, make sure you do you do subscribe for that. But we'll get into a bit more of that today then on the podcast. We've got a bit more time today to maybe get into some of the discussion around, um, well, the sorts of things that you'd be talking about on, on morning markets. So, um, Jeff, perhaps before we get into some of that, could you maybe give us a feel for how the week's gone that's been and, and yeah. what's happened since the last podcast. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit of a, a contrast really from the, the last podcast. I think last Friday I was probably talking about um, growth outperforming value. I was talking about the low levels of volatility in the market that we'd observed through through the month of April. And then lo and behold, we come into the, the start of May and those things that had been a trend last month have, have certainly reversed a little bit in the in the first week of the month. And it's very evident that, that value as a style. So when we talk about value, we it's, it's a word that is, is thrown around and means many different things to, to different people. But I think if we sort of say cyclical or those com- companies and areas of the market that are more exposed to economic improvement and think about it from that perspective, We've certainly seen those areas of the market be be stronger this week. So if we think about commodities, think about oil and gas companies, materials, miners, etc., the financial sector, those have, have been areas of the market that have, have performed well um, this week. Very noticeable when we just look back over the, the course of the week. 
the the Nasdaq or the Nasdaq 100, the more growth orientated area of the market underperforming and underperforming in quite a material way relative to the the broader market, a couple of percent there over the course of the week. So, and looking into that, not not a lot that we can sort of pin our hat on and say why has that has that occurred um, this week. Um, looking at it, there's there's some discussion from Janet Yellen in the US as as Treasury Secretary around her views and her views of hold quite a lot of weight. She was a, a previous chair of the Federal Reserve in the in the US. So she discussed the, the potential need for for interest rates in the US to rise um, to to help, I suppose, the economy continue in its recovery. And I say that because raising interest rates to maybe slow down the the speed of recovery, the the, the inflation that we we may see may see over the coming months. So that was something that's been sort of attributed to to maybe that sort of reappraisal. It's also I think worth noting just when we look at the number of companies in certain sectors rising versus the number of falling, and we think about that as breadth in the market. If we look at breadth within sort of technology, it, it, it's very very narrow at the moment. So only a few stocks causing that, that upward movement, a large number of the rest actually in a, in a slightly more negative vein. And that's that's something I think that we'll continue to, to monitor over the coming weeks because a narrowing of breadth is, is typically uh, can be perceived as a, as a slightly slight negative sign within the in within the market. I think the other real thing is if we were having this conversation tomorrow, the, the one big factor that everybody's looking at over the course of the week has been focused in on the US jobs report, which we get this afternoon. Um, so it, it's it's a very important um, report because it's going to give us an indication as to how the employment situation in the U, in the US has continued to evolve. We had a very strong report for March. The expectations is that we'll get another strong report for, for April with the potential for and it's an amazing number to think around sort of 900,000 jobs to maybe even at some of the higher end of expectations um, close to a million jobs being created over the course of, of the month and that is um, or to see the unemployment rate falling by that, that amount it, it's a phenomenal number but it just tells you where we've come from and the ongoing improvement and the strength of that improvement that we're seeing in the US and that might see the, the unemployment rate come down below 6% today, all very much driven by the key factor is not that the number itself, but the participation rate. Because what we've seen over the course of the past 12 months is a large number of people exiting the labour market in the US, starting to see them coming back in, seeing that participation rate move up alongside the unemployment rate coming down would be a very, very positive uh, dynamic for the US. So that comes out later on this afternoon. So we'll have a, a keen eye on on what comes out there. And again, like last month, it'll be noticeable for to, to see how the bond market reacts. Maybe not the equity market as much, but much more around what the bond market does um, around this number. So that's a, a key focus for this afternoon. And then I think George has, has touched on it and he's, he's, he covers it in, in morning markets, but it's, it's important that we touch on it in, in this session later on, just the, the comments from the, the Bank of England um, yesterday in terms of their view on, as we have observed and discussed on morning markets and indeed on, on, on these podcasts, the, the ongoing recovery 
that we're seeing in the UK economy. It's evident in the, the numbers that the, that the Bank of England put out yesterday in terms of their forecast for unemployment, growth, etc. But I'm sure we can come on and, and, and discuss that. Interestingly, they, they, they've, they've tapered a, a little bit, so reduced their, their bond purchases, but not, not, not dramatically so um, in, in terms of, of the change there. And then maybe just finally, I think it's worth commenting on on a lot of the headlines that are out there this morning on on Chinese trade, and you know comparing uh, last year's number to this year's number. So if you look at Chinese exports up 32 per, or yeah exports up 32 percent, imports I think 43 percent, massive numbers but actually meaningless in the in the in the grand scheme of things given how bad we knew um april last year was i think it's much more important when we look at them on a on a month and month basis and we can still see that strength in chinese exports month and month up nine percent month and month so ongoing recovery in in global economies being fed by by chinese exports coming through there so that's again just the quirks of of statistics isn't it you can get a very big number but you need to know what the base effect is to to really get a sense of of where we are so taking that all told a bit of a change in the dynamic this week at an equity market level no real change within within bond markets commodity markets as we we touched on last week have continued to really be strong um this week and that's across the across the piece of of commodities whether it's industrial commodities or or soft commodities so ongoing strength there feeding into that in inflation debate and challenge but I'll leave it. I'll leave it there, Peter. Just at the moment. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting of, stuff, and we'll get into more of that in a in a few minutes. Go on, George. I was just going to say, just in terms of the employment data, it's interesting to see initial claims falling again yesterday. So you've got initial claims which were actually around ninety-two thousand lowest. That's ninety-two thousand fewer American citizens applying for initial uh, jobless mm. claims in the U.S. week on week. Um, I mean, in terms of context, what does that level look like? You're still talking around half a million. Uh, people, um, uh, you know, applying for initial jobless claims, that's an elevated level. So, you know, in terms of pre-pandemic levels, it was, what, mm. 200, 220,000, something like that. Only around a quarter of those who do apply for the initial claims will actually be uh, eligible for, for, for getting that. So it's just ju just to, to add some context in terms of what those big numbers mean and how that, that actually feeds through. But in terms of the overall unemployment levels, I've seen a number of analyst expectations we're expecting around 5.7% to be the rate which would be down from 6% in the previous month so the direction of travel is 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 looking more positive there but yeah. there's a, a few caveats to take into consideration yeah. jeff mentioned there those who have been um exiting the, the labor market um or, or or coming under different categories in terms of the way in which they're receiving government support the other the other big thing that you, that comes out from what george is saying there is just the the good thing about the, the US data is the, the granularity that you get to see at an in industrial level. And so you get to see the type of job that's being created. So last month it was very much in in services and those areas of the economy reopening. So again, today it'll be very useful to get a picture of that if we get to see that services recovery ongoing that would, would would give confidence that actually as the economies reopen not just in the us but across across globally that that services element starts to pick up and then we we see that feeding into the overall growth picture as well and that that's an important area for 
for the US to, to, to really see that improve. There was a big, big improvement last month. If we can see that again this month, and um, that would be very encouraging for a, for a broader economic recovery coming through, not just one that's been driven by manufacturing and industrial related activity. It's really interesting stuff. And Chris, just to, I had a question for you there as Jeff and George were talking about unemployment in America and positive, you know, in terms of um, a slowing, if you like, of unemployment. Um, and then Jeff talking about some of the sectors, but thinking about a TP, a true potential um, investor, somebody who's maybe got a few thousand in, in a balanced portfolio that you and the team would look after uh, with, with your partners. Why, why, why would, can you just explain, Chris, for our viewers, why would, you know, falling unemployment in Michigan uh, or, or uh, you know, an improvement in the services sector in, I don't know, Chicago, why would that affect or how would that affect somebody who's in one of our portfolios with a bit of money invested in, a, in say, a balanced portfolio, what would be the link between that over there, thousands of miles away, which in one respect is probably completely abstract from there, from our clients' lives. But as you'll explain, I think, in a sec, why is that so relevant? Yeah, sure. It's a good question. I think you know, when we look at equity markets now, when we look at asset prices, actually, overall, asset prices are, are linked globally. So in some ways, what happens in the US also drives what happens globally. So, so global return of asset prices. And I think you know, when we look at unemployment figures, you know, for me, it's, it's one of the key barometers that shows the health of an economy. And it also shows how the global economy is, is recovering overall. So although it may seem a little bit weird that you know, we focus in quite heavily around US unemployment data, um, what it's signaling is that the US is moving through that recovery path probably at a faster pace than, than anyone thought. Um, and that's, that's really healthy. You know, it shows us coming out of the pandemic uh, and it shows us moving to, I guess, a more, a more, a more sort of normal economy, if, if that's what you can call it. Um, so for me, it's, it's an indicator of the health of the economy overall. I think to build on that as well, it's to, to, if you think about how that feeds its way through into, into demand, in, improving employment prospects, improving income levels, drives aggregate demand in an economy higher, which is positive for companies that participate in that. So positive from a share price potential perspective as well. But I think the other key aspect and something that, that Chris has alluded to there is just that interconnected nature of, of global markets. And, and that's really driven by the US from, from a number of factors. One, it's, it's, it's overall size from a, a demand perspective in, in the global economy. It's also about how we think about the setting of, of risk-free rates. And by that, we look at, typically you look at a government treasury as being the, the, the barometer of that. So a government bond, sovereign bond, the US treasury market effectively sets the cost of capital in in, in, in a world context. So what happens in the US has ramifications in terms of global pricing of, yeah. of assets. And that is why, you know, it, it, and, and I think it's, it's a great point to bring up, Peter, in the sense that we spend a lot of time looking at the US and people might wonder why we, we do that, but it's just that interconnected nature, as, as Chris says, it's, it's so crucial to thinking about what it means for asset prices across the globe. 
and, and also I'm just looking at my I'm just doing what you know I hope our clients do which is um, if you look at your um, you know our account you can see in your portfolio and this goes to the point about advanced diversification which is not having all your investments and your assets in one part of the world but spreading that across around the globe uh, but if you look at it within the app um, you know you can see a breakdown and of course the US accounts for you know, a, a decent chunk of an overall composition of a, of a portfolio, doesn't it? So clearly what happens in that part of the world is going to have a, there's the famous phrase, isn't there? I'm probably going to misquote it, but is it, you know, when America catch, when America sneezes, the rest of the world yeah. catches a cold. So clearly the influence that America has in all aspects of our lives is, is well borne out. Tim's, you could probably the, add, sorry, go ahead, George. Yeah, I was just, just going to say in terms of the US, I think Jeff, you touched on a, a classic example of how the rest of the world feels sensitivity to what's happening in the US with the comments from from Janet Yellen um, earlier in the week, and you know the guidance from 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 well from the Fed, not the central bank. They usually sit independent to one another, um, which is the ironic thing. But it's Janet Yellen, so the market sat up and listened when she um, started talking about where rates should be, and it, given the level of growth, came back later in the afternoon and and backtracked on that a little bit. But you know central bank policy. Federal federal policy as well as you know a key factor in the U.S., but it also has an implication worldwide because the U.S. is such a, a strong component of global growth. Um, but in in terms of what it means for markets, you know, one of the things we have been discussing is, you know, a lot a lot of investors looking at the U.S. and saying, well, you know, it, it's looking quite expensive in terms of what you're actually buying as as an asset. So what's been really interesting within the conversations we're having within the portfolios is where in the US are our managers being active, where are they accessing returns, which is slightly differentiated from say, just buying on a passive basis, buying the whole market, which aspects when you get under the bonnet, look particularly interesting to actually generate a strong return from the US and really capture that reopening theme, which you, you, you see and come through as you do see employment levels come back online as you see the strong vaccination program which we've seen start to wash through in those activity levels we look at high frequency data in terms of you know social mobility and in restaurant bookings and travel and in and how that feeds into the overall growth picture which therefore has an implication on the rest of the world i think if you know we think about the the kind of global developed economies you know what is it is it 60 70 percent of that is is consumption so obviously when more people are employed more people can afford to consume so again it just it kind of gives you that picture of of a healthier economy overall tell us about some of the conversations that you're having with you know your other investment management partners you know from from all over the world i mean i know you i know you have regular conversations uh, with them, what sort of sentiment, without without breaching any confidences possibly, but what sort of sentiments are you getting through? What what are, what are you hearing? What's the mood out there in the investment world? Yeah, sure. So I think you know you've touched on something that I think is quite interesting in that you know we're extremely close to the managers that we work with. You know we are speaking to them monthly, weekly, and you know they're one of our our key sources of research overall within the true potential portfolio proposition. I think you know one of the things that we've been discussing, and it's quite interesting. We're actually sort of analysing a lot of, been analysing a lot of data over the past few days and putting questions together for our managers overall. But one of the things that we're thinking about is, I guess, where are we right now within the market cycle? Mm -hmm. So what you've seen since the vaccine came out is 
I guess, the sort of lower quality areas of value, you know, areas particularly such as energy, do very, very well. Um, and now what you're seeing is potentially that's maturing a little bit. So what we're thinking about is, is what's next. And in some ways, that, that's always what we're thinking about. But, you know, what, what, what will be the, the dominant sources of return over the next three months, six months, 12 months? How are we thinking about where we are within the cycle overall? So for me, that's, that's probably my key question that I'm thinking about right now. Really interesting. The other, the other thing ahead, to add into that, Peter, is also that, that there's so many things happening in in asset markets on a on a daily basis that it's trying to to distill those down into what are sort of the points that are going to make big differences to to the underlying portfolios that that our clients are exposed to, and trying to just pinpoint that with the underlying managers because each of those managers are different. Speaking to your point about diversification. They they have different perspectives. They have they have different views. They have different ways of implementing that within a portfolio. So that provides another level of of questioning and discussion. What is the most effective way to to have that exposure within a portfolio, such that our clients are are benefiting from the work that they are doing, both from a a market and opportunity basis, but also from what is the most effective way to implement it. Because at the end of the day, that comes down. There's a there's a cost implication for that, and and we all know that costs have have implications for for client return as well. So many different angles to that that discussion. But as you as you rightly point out, because we're so close to the the the, the partners that with with whom we work, that we we see what they do on a daily basis. George and and the team reflect that back into it. So we're 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 very much live to just what's happening incrementally as well Jeff, as Jeff, how do you, how, about... I'm fascinated by how you how you process all that data and come to a decision on anything because often life you know too much information is is just as bad as not enough because you just how do you where do you start but you know from, from my perspective I I impulse save a pound or 50 quid and so do so do millions of other people and you know that that accumulates into billions of pounds that you you three and the rest of your team because it's not just you three there's a whole team as well behind you that are processing but but i said in the introduction that we'd perhaps get a bit of insight into what you do how how, how do you do it because i i just do my impulse save and trust you to get on with the rest and i'm right to do that because i wouldn't have a clue where to start and i don't particularly want to do that it's not my area but it is yours so when you're talking about these conversations and you're getting information from investment management global world-class investors around the world an abundance of data coming into you but at some points dare i say it, it's a bit like a referee in football where you might have you know, somebody in the ear saying it looked like a penalty, but someone in someone in the end has got to make a decision or you might have a VAR reviewing something, but someone's got to make a call in the end. Is that how it is for you? You get all this information in, but in the end, you as a team have to come to a collective. This is the way we're going. I think that's right. It is a collective decision in terms of, of, of where we're going. But maybe what we can do here is is bring it to life a little bit. So. I wonder if George, do you want to talk about how you, you know, look at you look at one of the managers and just bring that to life, and then Chris, if we bring that together into the the, the TPP meeting, and it'll maybe give all of our our viewers and listeners a sense of of the approach that we take to to answer that that question. Do we have too much information? No problem at all, Jeff. Uh, you know, very pleased to. In terms of you know that how that process looks. 
you are right, Peter. You you almost take a hopper and you put put it, a, a lot of information in, and what our job is to do is to still distill that down into what, what's actually driving the manager's decision, what's driving their performance, what's driving the changes which they're enacting, and why. So, for for me as an investment analyst, the starting point is always the data. We've got a a, a real strong um, sort of perspective here because the true potential funds are. are our true potentials. We're not buying these products off the shelf. So I don't have to go to a sales guy at one of the, the product providers and wait for the information to come back in a format which they feel is you know favorable, reflecting a favorable view of them. I go to the source of the data, I get that information, I run that through our models, I look at the fund in terms of the level of risk which is being taken. I look at any changes which have been enacted by the manager. So we're walking alongside the manager in terms of trades. We can see those on a day-to-day -day basis. And every morning we come back and we report those back into the, the team for discussion. We're looking at the performance as well. So what's driving that performance? What we then do with all that information is we sit down with the, the fund manager which we're employing. So be it the manager at UBS or 7IM or Goldman Sachs. What we're not looking for is a narrative of every trade which they've been through because we already know that. What we want to know is how that's performed, how that's worked relative to those expectations, what the rationale for those trades were, What's the next steps? What's the market environment look like as we move forward? And how are they going to position towards that? So what we then got is a view of what's happened, why that's happened, how that worked out. But more importantly, where are we going from here? How do we steer the fund in a, in a way which will best extract those opportunities for investors? The really interesting point of that is we're not just getting one single view. All of the managers we work with do have slightly different ways of working, slightly different views. And that's what brings the whole pool of a diversified portfolio together. One of these managers will be positioned right. One of these managers will, may not be positioned as well for that environment. We take the tilts in the portfolio to the managers which we feel are best suited. But by having all of those different views and having that level of insight and access in terms of the portfolio managers and their research centers as well, it means we've got nine different views which we can challenge off one another. So you don't just get information spoon-fed to you from one single perspective. We're taking that, we're building that insight, we're enhancing that with that manager, and then we're challenging all of the other managers in terms of that view. So when we take the information in the top of the hopper, we're very quickly able to distill that down into, okay, what's the key themes in markets as we look forward? How are managers going to position towards that? What do our portfolios currently look like? Because even when we look at the portfolios on a monthly basis, in terms of a view to enact a, a decision to change the allocation to each of these managers, those managers have been making decisions on a day-to-day -day basis under the bonnet. So it's really important we keep up to date with that. So when we're making that decision, when we're making that tilt, it's in line with the factors of optimization, which are all about extracting the best risk-adjusted return for clients over the longer term. So that's that's what makes the job so interesting. We're not just getting one source. We've got a huge amount of information and views and experts where we can use to challenge, but really get, you know, deeper insight into to where we're moving forward and how we do that. But the decision ultimately comes down to to the team at, at True Potential. I think just for me, you know, I think George has, has gone through our process incredibly well there. And I think from my perspective, you know, Peter building on your point, you can have too much research you know the reality is is you have a finite length of time to during the working day whereby you can read that research digest it use it 
So for us, what I think is quite good about our investment process is that everything we have is completely relevant and everything that we have is completely useful. So as George said, you know, we are sitting down with our managers, but we've already analyzed their trades. We've analyzed their performance. We know what their views are. We know how their views fit into our current key themes. So a lot of what we're trying to do there is, is really try and look forward. So try and work out what are their views around how asset prices will move, how the macro environment will change when we look forward. So for me, what I think is, is really powerful around what we do is we have access to all of that different research, all of those different viewpoints. And what we can do is we can distill that into our key themes. And then as George said, we tilt the portfolios to make sure that the portfolios are in line with those key themes and to make sure that the portfolios are, in our opinion, optimally positioned overall. Mm, great. And well, I think we, we should probably not lift a... We, we go, go on, George. I'm just, just, you know, I think what's also nice is we don't just keep it on the desk. We can communicate it back out quickly. You know, we we had a webinar on Tuesday morning straight after the bank holiday. We, you know, we saw a trade which was coming through on Friday. We were able to actually get on the phone with the portfolio manager, discuss that and actually bring it to life with advisors on, you know, the next working day um, mm. in terms of what that trade is. What does it look like? What's it there for? How is that an example of generating it was in within a bond allocation how's that manager gone about extracting a higher level of yield for investors within that portfolio so it's not you know we're, we're doing this on a regular basis and we're doing weekly updates with with advisors as well which is 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 a really nice thing to be able to do yeah well jeff uh, jeff and george and uh, chris don't give any more of your secrets away because i know there are some of the naughty companies out there that like to watch our podcast and try to copy what you do and nick your ideas so let's not but I th just on a, on a point, though, just as you were chatting there, I was just thinking, I know it can be quite fun for some people to go onto some of these sites where you can almost pick your own stock and stuff. And and all right, it's maybe a bit bit of fun on a, on, a, on a Saturday afternoon or something, whatever. You know, some people bet on the horse or some people might want to have a thing that can pick stocks. But you haven't, got a, you haven't got a chance. I mean, just from what you've described there, you don't have that kind of intelligence, that kind of data. And even if you did, and you won't, but even if you did, to be able to then interpret it into something intelligent to make a decision on forget it so you know i have to say you know you're just far better off you know putting your faith and your money and into the kind of expertise that you guys have got and letting you do the rest i wouldn't i wouldn't dare to try to to compete um but chris just to we've talked a bit about there about the how if you like and how you manage the portfolios we've talked a little bit about the future and in, in looking ahead but can i just take you back to to april we've got a full month under our belt now i think when we did the last podcast we hadn't quite rounded off the month but we obviously have now um tell me a bit about how the portfolios did in april yeah sure um i've got to say i'm really pleased with the performance of the portfolios for april so what you saw is that equity markets poor performed particularly well uh, so they were the dominant source of return so that means that higher risk investors were rewarded so investors were rewarded for taking risk overall so if we just look at the numbers the aggressive portfolio was up over three percent our growth portfolios were up between 2.9 to 3%. Balanced portfolios were up around about 2.4%. Cautious portfolios were up between 1.6 to 2.4%. And our defensive portfolio was up 1%. So for me, it's been a, a fantastic month. But I think what is interesting is actually if you look at it over the last 12 months, and you know, one of the things we've been talking about is the recovery 
and obviously we've talked about the recovery from a i guess an economic perspective but how has that factored into clients returns now if we look at the aggressive portfolio that's up nearly 30 percent over 12 months now if we look at the growth portfolios you're looking at returns of between 24 percent to 25 percent balanced is up around about 19 percent so what you've seen is fantastic returns with investors being rewarded for taking risk. And I think one of the, the key things for me, and you know, this is something that we discussed a lot last year, is that investors have been rewarded for staying put. You know, what you've seen is investors who you know, maybe were a little bit nervous in February, March 2020 for you know, very understandable reasons. You know, the ones that stayed invested actually have seen that incredible recovery come through but for investors who've maybe you know panicked sold out they've lost out so it just shows just how important it is to to stay invested and not to panic and not to try and time markets overall but i guess just digging into those monthly figures just thinking about you know which managers have done well uh which managers maybe haven't done so well and when i say haven't done so well actually all of the managers have provided a positive return. So it gives you an idea of, of what a good month April was, but uh, I'll just highlight a couple of managers. Close Brothers have done particularly well. Um, so their holdings in Microsoft, Adobe, Visa. So that's a little bit more on the tech side. They've also had holdings in financials. So things such as Partners Group, uh, London Stock Exchange, 3i, they've all done very well. And also more on the, I guess, the commodity focus side. So Jeff mentioned a little bit around commodity price strength. You've seen that come through in the miners that they hold. So Anglo, Rio Tinto. They've also got a copper position as well, which has done well. And another manager that uh, has done well over April is Goldman Sachs. So the True Potential Goldman Sachs Balanced Fund. Uh, and within that, basically what you've seen there is, is good stock picking but particularly good stock picking within the tech names. So they've got names in there such as Amazon. And what you've seen is, is those tech names do well over the month of April. And then just very lastly, just want to plug one last thing, which is, is really the long-term performance of TPP. And this is something that you know, maybe we don't talk about so much on the podcast, but I think it's really important. So we launched the portfolios in October 2015. So basically, you've got just over five and a half years worth of data. And if we just look at, say, our aggressive portfolio, that's up nearly 72% over that time period. But if you distill that down to what would a client have received on an annual basis, they would have received over 10% a year. And that's after fund charges as well. So I know as a team, we're incredibly proud of what we've done and what we've achieved overall. But I genuinely believe that we've delivered some fantastic returns for clients over the lifetime of the product. Yeah, I think it just goes to that point that I was making a second ago, um, which you've articulated even better, which is if you're trying to, if you're serious about growing your money, um, you know, if you if your car breaks down, you don't go to the butchers, you get a mechanic. And if you want to make your, if you want your money to to work for you and do more with your money, you trust the you trust the guys who know what they're doing. I think you've you've made that point, Chris, perfectly. It's interesting. I've had some cars, I've had some cars that have came back looking like they've been to the butchers, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, actually. You, know, you, you kind of mentioned horse racing before, and you know people talk about 
basically taking a punt on a stock. And I get that, you know, a lot of people enjoy that, which is absolutely fine. But you've got to think, you know, would you bet your pension on a horse race? You know, unless you were completely mad, I don't think you would. So for me, it's just just leave it to the experts and, and hopefully we'll do a good job. I know, I'm doing a good job, it has to be said as well. George, um, we'll talk. We'll, we'll probably do a podcast one day on where you should take your car to. It sounds like you should be probably the, <laughs> a, key, a, key, a key guest on that one. But for now, um, you mentioned earlier on the, the Bank of England and the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, maybe, it, maybe a committee that not a lot of people outside of our, if you like, investment world would have heard of. So can you just maybe explain to people who aren't aware what, 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 is, what is the job of the Monetary Policy Committee and what did it say this week? Yeah, sure. So the Monetary Policy Committee, it's a, a, a department of the Bank of England who are really in place to manage interest rates um, and also monetary policy in general, which is the purchase of bonds, but also the interest rate lever as well. We know around March 2020, so March last year, the Monetary Policy Committee took the decision um, in, in, you know, in support or in, in line with what you were seeing on, on the government side in terms of fiscal support to really loosen policy. What that meant was they would taper back interest rates. So you had interest rates which came down to around 0.1% and they were increasing um, the pace in which they were buying bonds from the market. Buying bonds from the market essentially increases the liquidity um, within the market. You saw a big rush for liquidity um, in, in the time of the sell-off last year. So they were really there to, to, support, to support that. In terms of what you saw coming out of, of the committee um, yesterday in terms of the report, overall they decided to leave the interest rate at 0.1%. So that was to be expected. Um, but they also in, voted in favour of, of maintaining the current target in terms of bond purchase programme. So just to give you some idea of, of the scale of that, it's a purchase programme of around £875 billion. So you've had a number of different tranches of that. At the moment, we're in the tranche, which is around £150 billion. Um, but they did vote to, to taper back the pace of the purchases, which Jeff mentioned in the introduction there. So they're currently buying about £4.4 billion worth of bonds from the market each week. They're going to taper that back to around £3.4 billion. That's just so they can hit that target in a in a, in a more accurate manner. Um, but, you know, as always with central banks and the guidance which we've seen from central banks around the world, they're very much open to, to opening those taps back up if, if they do need to. So they remain supportive overall. I think what was interesting about the meeting, and in a way to be expected, the majority vote was eight to one, the one being Andy Haldane. Andy Haldane is a notorious hawk within the Monetary Policy Committee, a hawk just meaning somebody who's very um, acute to inflation and therefore generally favours having higher interest rates, having tighter monetary policy to keep a lid on inflation overall. Why was he voting in favour of cutting back the target? He voted in cutting back that overall target around 50 billion, so from 875 billion to 825 billion overall. Because he's convinced about the economic rebound, which you see him come through, he's convinced by the success of the vaccination rate, the levels of activity which you are starting to see, you know, revised and, and how that feeds into the overall outlook of, of the Monetary Policy Committee in terms of you know, economic growth. So the economic growth forecasts from the committee year on year for, for 2021 were revised up to 7.25% from 5% where they were in February. So you've seen a positive revision there. 
in terms of further out, further down the line, in terms of um, 2022, the growth rate is expected to be about 5.75. So that is slightly down from, from where they initially expected. But actually, if you sort of balance that out with an even longer term view, 2023, it's expected to be um, you know, higher than higher than what they were initially expecting. There's uh, about 1% higher. Unemployment is expected to be stronger. It's around 5.2% for the year, um, stronger than the 7.8% the which they previously expected. So overall, what you're seeing there is, you know, strong forecasts in terms of economic growth and strong revisions there, given that tailwind of, of the success which we're having within the vaccination levels. What they're seeing in terms of high frequency data overall, I think, in terms of inflation, which we is is a key factor in which you know they're they're aiming to achieve, they left markets under no no illusion that raising rates in the near term is is not in in their agenda um, at this point in time. So they're making clear that the inflation prints, which we will see and and we will inevitably see coming through in the the coming weeks and months, will be higher. It will reflect a difference on where we were this time last year when we were in a, a very tight lockdown environment. Um, but that will moderate towards that target of around 2% over the coming years. So they're viewing it more as a transitory impact, um, which is leading to them to, to, to be supportive of that current loose policy um, with more of, the, more of the doves in the count relative to, to Haldane. But Haldane will, will actually be, be stepping back from, from his role of um, chief economist at the Bank of England and his, his position within the MPC at the end of June. Um, which will be interesting. He's been, you know, he's had a, a three-decade tenure um, at, at the MPC. Um, he's provided challenge, provided debate. Um, so it'll be be interesting to see how the, the MPC um, discussions and meetings evolve without almost the contrarian as he's been in in some of the the, the, the latter meetings. So, George, you so, mentioned inflation there, and and Jeff, I wanted to bring you in on that point because you've talked about this in previous podcasts and. And I've seen other uh, meetings where you've mentioned inflation. So, you know, just to, just to sort of understand, should we be worried about inflation? And how would somebody, again, just going back to, the, to our viewers, if you're, you know, going about your daily business, what would be an in early indicator of prices creeping up? Or well, that that will be that, well, that is the obvious indicator that prices are creeping up. But things like at the petrol pump, you would see it, wouldn't you? Quite early. Yeah. Give us a give us a feel for. Where it's, where it's particularly noticeable and, and why it's is it a, is it a concern or not? I think th there's a couple of aspects to that and it, it maybe ties into something that we've been discussing as well in terms of using investment to to help potentially offset the the negative impact that inflation can have. So what what is inflation effectively? Well, it's a, it's a rise in the overall. Um, price level, but what does that mean? It actually erodes the value of your your underlying savings as well. So there's an important point there from a savings perspective that you you want to earn a return over and above that prevailing inflation rate to get a real return on on your on your your money. So if if you're not doing that, you're ironically you're losing money. You don't see it because you still see your one pound sitting in the bank account, but actually the purchasing power of that one point has been eroded and that's the important thing from a, a consumer point of view but you're right peter where do you see it i think we, we probably all noticed it at the petrol pump first it's the one thing that seems to be very reactive to when oil prices go up it doesn't for some reason seems to be as reactive on the downward <laughs> I, I don't know I'm why that is I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to, to, to speculate on that but 
certainly it seems to be much more geared to to the upside and that's probably the one bit where we where it becomes very evident but also i think just in in our daily shopping and then things there when you're going around in the supermarket you probably do notice it in certain areas and it ties into to really what we were hearing from companies over the the course of the month of um march or, and april when they have been reporting results just talking about rising input costs and companies have got two choices one they can absorb that cost but that hurts their margin hurts their earnings hurts their potential opportunity or they can try and pass that through to us as consumers and a lot of the the consumer goods companies have talked about their need to pass on some of these costs to to consumers. So I think if we look out over the next three, six months, we will see some of those prices of things that we purchase on a, on a regular basis starting to just creep up incrementally in price. And it's not just about the, the, the input cost side of things, it's also about transportation costs that have increased. If you think about what's happened as a result of of the pandemic and it still hasn't been resolved. We got a great indication a few weeks ago with the the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. Transportation is still a challenge. There's a number of ships that are in the wrong place. There's lots of containers that are in the wrong place still. That hasn't been worked through the system. And those are all costs that companies have to, to bear that feeds through <coughs> to, into rising price levels for us as, as the consumer. And just right back at the start where we, we, we touched on, on commodity prices, those are input costs into manufacturing processes. Companies have to recoup that money that they expend on those. Going back to that, do they do it via prices or do they do it via a lower margin? Unlikely that they'll sustain lower margins for, for a long time. They will want to pass some of that through to, to us as consumers. So from what you're saying, you know, it looks like, and I think um, George, you made the point as well from the, the committee this week that inflation does appear to be, you know, heading upwards, or at least the signs are that we're probably in for a period of rising inflation. Why does that, why will that not, going back to what you were saying about Andy Holiday and others on the committee, why, why, why do they feel that wouldn't feed through to rising interest rates? Because traditionally, if I'm right, and you tell me if I'm right, the way to control inflation would be through interest rates, adjusting inf interest rates to to act as almost a break on inflation. Sure. So, if if you're, for example, you know, taking out a mortgage now, and there was there's been loads of stories in the papers over the last few weekends about um, with stamp duty holidays, we're seeing a bit of a you know more people. <laughs> the housing market seems to be shooting away a little bit. So, should you be concerned if you're taking out a mortgage of what might be coming down the track on interest rates, or I why should there's... it not be? I think there's a couple of things in that. If we think about where interest rates are, as George alluded to there in the in the UK, 0.1%. So we're not talking about rates that are at five, six percent and moving moving north for there. So rates are incredibly low, and even market expectations don't really show interest rates increasing to dramatically high levels relative to history. So I think that that has to be our our sort of starting point there. The big challenge for for all of us um, as market participants at this point in time around inflation is to the point George is making, whether it is just something that we have to work through on a, a three, six month view, and then those big sort of prevailing forces that have driven down inflation over the past 30, 40 years continue to reassert themselves. Demographics, technological change, the lack of unionization, all things that have driven in inflation down, do they reassert themselves? 
that that's the bit that's that that's uncertain at the moment and it goes back to sort of that statistics at the moment they're showing tremendous growth rates on an annualized basis is that just because we had a very low effect from last year as that washes through into the back half of this year maybe a lot of that that dynamic goes away that's that's what we that's what's really the the unknown peter in terms of of where we are when you start to see companies however increase prices you don't often hear of companies coming out and saying we're cutting prices so that's the other side of this that, that needs to be watched in that if some of these prices go through and they don't result in a demand deterioration well companies are highly unlikely i would have thought to cut prices uh, going again into that so that's something that has to be observed as as, as well as we go through it and then uh, the other I think aspect of this is that that central banks are are focused on longer term dynamics, and this is why there's this sort of challenge for them at, at this point in time between is it transitory or is it inflation expectations that have built and then remain high going forward? Because it's really in expectations that, that that drive this our expectations as as consumers. So there's 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 a multitude of dynamics going on, but you're your analysis in terms of what traditionally happens, inflation or concern on an economy overheating and rates moving up is the normal reaction function. It's just that we've got an economy at the moment that is coming out of a man-made um, recession because we voluntarily took the decision to close down economies. And that's something that none of us or any of the central bankers have had to work their way through. At the same time, you've got governments that, to, to George's earlier point, have had to step in and, and support economies. They've done that by issuing a tremendous amount of debt. Hence, we've got this symbiotic relationship between treasury departments and central banks that we didn't have before. So governments don't really want, well, I think, we could argue, but governments probably don't want interest rates to move dramatically because of the interest rate bill that they would have to to foot um, as well at this point in time. So there's a, a sorry, it's a long answer, but there's just a multitude yeah, of factors yeah. going on that are influencing that that decision making process around rates at, at this point in time. Fascinating. I think it's been a really interesting discussion um, to get just to lift a little, little bit and get some of your insights onto what's going through your minds and the information you're getting and, and how that feeds through to. Do you ever feel the pressure, by the way? I mean, <laughs> serious question. You manage billions of pounds of money. Does that. Chris, come on. When you're having a drink on a Friday night, you must you must you must you must need that drink because it's a high pressure job, isn't it? You guys come on. You can. This is your moment to to let it all out. <laughs> well, I, th I think from my perspective, um, you know, it, it, the job is we want to give clients the best risk adjusted returns that we can. Um, and so from my perspective, you know, there's always in some ways a score there in the sense that you know what your performance figures are and you want them to be as good as possible. And that obviously does create um, some stress. But what I would say is I think when you work in investment, you should love your job and I don't always love my job but what I mean by that is you should be really interested in investment 
and I know that everyone on the true potential investment team is. And so for me, is it stressful? It, it can be at times. Um, but I think the reality is, is that you, know, you either are really interested in it, you love it, and therefore you should work within investment or you shouldn't. So for me, um, you just you get used to it. And I think also, Chris, it probably helps if you're good at your job, which you, you three and the rest of the team clearly are after the numbers you gave us just before. So that probably helps an awful lot as well. Any final thoughts just, then, gents? We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But go on, George. Any, any sort of final, final thoughts? Of... I mean, you know, Chris is, Chris is the lead manager on, on the portfolios, but is a, is a, you know, is a support and analyst. I think what, what's been really useful in environments which are more challenging. Um, and, you know, I've seen, I didn't think I'd see environments which I have so so early on in my career is um, the focus in in that type of environment, and we get the focus through our investment process. So in in positive markets, in more challenging markets, we've got a process which, going back to that initial point of you've got so much information, build on top of that headlines, build on top of that different queries and viewpoints. If you put that into the the, the hopper, you, you're able to distill that down whether it's good news or whether it's more challenging news, into what's actually important and then how do you act on, on that? So in times of pressure and, and stress and noise, it's about keeping that focus, which I think yeah. we've we've been successful at in terms of managing that investment process. I think just to, to build on that, Peter, a little bit, because one of the things that the investment industry is great at is putting out narratives and stories around why things are there. And one of the key things that hopefully people have picked up from today is that we focus on data, we focus on information. And it's about going back to sort of first principles from from my perspective and, and getting that information, understanding that information and then joining the dots, as opposed to picking up a headline that says that the market has plunged today. And actually, you look at it, plunge now seems to be if a market falls a percent, a percent and a half, which in the grand scheme of things, if we go back, over time is just a normal market movement. So the the sensationalism, the, the mediaization or social media around things and that sort of instant gratification element of it is something that one needs to, to step away from. And that's why for us, it's about looking at data, interpreting the data, taking a view on that, and then thinking about how that means, may or may not mean for, for, for the future. Great stuff. Really interesting. Really, really enjoyed the discussion today, gents. So thanks very much for your insight and contributions, Chris, Jeff, and George as well. And thank you also to you for watching. I hope you found that useful and informative. I'm sure you did. Do yourself a favor uh, and your investments and your future. Let these guys look after it for you, or at least the money element of it, and uh, back them because they're, they're working, as they say, around the clock uh, uh, for you. So, oh, and also another favor you can do yourself, as George mentioned at the start of today, is to subscribe to the YouTube channel, because if you do that, you'll catch this kind of insight uh, every morning and uh, weekly on the podcast, along with a whole load of other amazing content as well. So just hit subscribe and uh, you won't miss a thing. So until the next time, it's bye for now. Thanks very much. Subscribing to True Potential YouTube channel is quick and easy. Simply go to your YouTube app on your phone, type in True Potential and press the red subscribe option. You'll then be notified as and when new videos are released.